Welcome to worship. I'm going to read Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. You sit and testify against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought it was, I was exactly like you. But now I arraign you. I set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. O oh God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you and all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who reigns and lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me.
chases me down, fights till I found leaves the ninety-nine. I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. Still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me.
fire in darkest night you are close like no other i've known you as a father i've known you as a friend i have lived in the goodness of god started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whomever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. the sure and steady Do 
James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, tomorrow or today we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, 
You boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone, then, knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Well, the Lord of the word of the Lord, thank you for that reading, Chris. This morning, uh, Shelley read for us the words, and an argument started among them. Or the translation that's familiar with, with those who are reading Bonhoeffer's work t- together, it says, a reasoning was among them. Bonhoeffer says that these uh, communities always reach this point where there begins an argument or reasoning among them over who shall be the greatest. Now, there's part of this that I think is, is Christians have found ways of like, okay, Jesus says we shouldn't do that. So what are other ways we can do that which he tells us not to do without doing what he tells us not to do? Um, if that sounds like a politician, then, then that's correct there. That's, that's the way they work too. Um, but we find, and this is, I think, in parenting, my kids aren't that age yet, but I, but I understand from my parents that kids, when you tell them not to do something, their mind often will go to, how can I do that thing without violating the base rule of what I shouldn't do? So the Gospels have this illustration for us among who shall be the greatest. It comes in different cases. It's actually, in one case, it's, it's the mother of two of the disciples who comes and says, you know, where are they going to sit? Um, and these things with the church, we found like, well, we'll never talk about who's the greatest among us. But we do talk about how can I get my way? How can I rule over someone? How can I make sure these things are bent in my direction? How can I use this person to get what I need? The great uh, pastor theologian Eugene Peterson would talk about how pastors have inadvertently taken in the language of business into how they look at their congregants. Park is a great resource for us. Peterson would say, park isn't a resource, park is a person, the soul, and that we care for him, and he cares for us in the gift that he brings. How are we accountable to one another is another way in which we sort of bring in this language that we use in so many other realms that it's hard to make useful in our own. An argument, a reasoning started among them, over who shall be the greatest. And Jesus pulls from them, among them, a children and says, whoever is the least in the kingdom, that's who shall be the greatest. This begins Bonhoeffer's chapter with this warning after we've talked about what does it mean to be in community together? What does it mean to have a day together where we worship and share in the scriptures together, to have a day alone, and then to be active in service for one another? Now, if you have an older translation of Life Together, this chapter is called Ministry. Um, If you have a newer translation, this chapter is called Service. But what it is in which the ways in which the discipleship community cares for one another. Now, one of the things that I think is true more and more in our modern world is we talk about rights. It's become clear during the time of the virus that certain people talk about, what are my rights? How are my rights being violated? We have a right to do this. We have a right to do that. But the church often talks in the language not so much of rights, but of responsibilities. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. You have a right to do a lot of things in Christ. But when we become members of this community, we participate in responsibilities together. We offer a service to one another. Bonhoeffer is talking about the service that believers render unto each other, all believers, the weak and the strong, in this way in which they can care for one another. And in this way, he says that this is a way we will prevent this reasoning from coming among us. There's two other things I want to point out. One is that there are, uh, I guess it's one thing, but with two points. Um, uh, one is, is that there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. Do this for one another. Now, it's literally preaching the choir to tell the church the Christian life isn't something you can do alone because by virtue of being at church, they've at least caught on to some of that. But there are 59 commands for one another to do and to be and to, and to have with each other. 
if you're going to try and follow this New Testament life without one another, is you're going to hit some bumps along the way, and you're going to find it hard to live this life together. But the second thing I want to talk about is that Bonhoeffer takes this, this service and this ministry chapter, and he talks about the care of the community together. It's been one of the points that I often make as I, as I preach and speak here about and think about the values of our church, and I often try to, to remind us it's perhaps one of the more controversial parts of being part of our church is that the care of our common life, the care of who we are together, that nobody reasons that they are the greatest or that people exercise power over one another in poor ways, is actually part of our witness to the kingdom of God. So often, churches think only the things we do outside of the community, whether it be evangelism or justice or this, that, and the other, those are the only ways in which a, a church or Christian believer can point the way to God. But what Bonhoeffer in the New Testament and in the Old Testament will all argue is that the character, the content of the community gathered under God's name is its own language of the kingdom to the world. We want to go and do, we want to go and be active often, but caring for our own life within our walls enough so that we can say, come and see the body of our Lord and point to the church is one, difficult to do because many of us have been a part of churches for a long time, but also it doesn't give us the effectiveness. And in our world, it also makes us some... We, we can try to earn our justification in the eyes of the world by the good things we offer it. It's a temptation I saw come for many of my clergy friends during this time of virus and crisis is they wanted to jump in before we even knew the needs to repair the community. Not because they had prayed and discerned, but that's how we gain street cred in the world. We still care for one another, uh, and meaning those outside of the walls. And I would say that, that there may have been a time where in which that would have pointed to something in the world, but many of us are aware of somebody who's an atheist or a Buddhist or um, uh, some other religion or no religion at all that manages to also care for the least of these. And if that's the only character of our faith, we lose something. But Bonhoeffer wants to say that caring for one another within these walls is its own type of service and is important in and of itself. And then to do this, he wipes, walks through sort of seven different ways of we, w in which we minister to one another. The first, uh, and, and these ways of ministering to one another, he says the highest which is, is which when we speak the word of God to one another. And then six of the ways are making sure you know who you are when you speak the word of God to one another. The first one is the ministry of holding one's tongue. We're grading ourselves, so just put down an F. That's um, uh, a, a, maybe a D minus on a good day. Um, he wants us to practice the ministry of not saying things out loud. One of the things in, in the community that they had at Finkenwald together in the seminary was is that Bonhoeffer sort of had the strict rules that if you're going to talk about another person there, just invite them into the conversation. His strictness was in that you wouldn't just talk about people behind their back ever. Um, and he almost advocates for that in this chapter, is that you bring the person in front of you. My professor um, uh, at seminary, he had this way of saying that, you know, if somebody was coming up with a solution to somebody's problems, which I've never done, I've never done, <laughs> is that when the person is not in the room but you're talking about somebody and you say, oh, this is exactly what Michael should do and this and this and this and then all of Michael's problems would go away. Um, again, never done that. Um, that. That he would say, why don't we call Michael if we know so much about what he should do? It would be a good gift of charity for us to actually offer this solution to him. Us solving his issues and his reality without actually coming to Michael is not a good thing. Um, and this is where we undercut people in two ways. When we begin to do that, Michael begins to seem dumb because he can't figure it out himself. We lower his worth, and we raise our own in the sense of, if I were Michael, being able to take on all the problems that this person hypothetically has to deal with and go through, 
I would be able to clear, see clearly through the forest and live a whole and good life. He wants us to be able to hold our tongues in check. And he bans this talking in secret and bans this way in which we don't speak to one another. But he says, and this is one of the things that I think picks up in that James reading in the psalm that we read today that, that Chris read for us is language in the biblical terms, in the ancient terms, and even today when we think about it, creates realities. If you begin to tell stories about yourself, that I'm worthless, that, that I um, don't amount to much, that I, everything everybody said about me that's wrong is true, you begin to adapt to that personality. Or look at it this way. If, if you see people who are um, speaking words over their children or over their partners in a way that seems to demean them, and then it sort of becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy. Again, once again, you feel great because, look, I predicted. They're always a mess up. They always mess up. But you also created the reality that tells that story. You also made this reality. And so the book of James and the Psalms and many other parts of the New Testament are aware that when we speak these things, these become things in which we can live into. And so it's best to hold our tongue in check so that we can make greater realities. This is part of the biblical language of having blessings and curses. Blessings and curses in some ways make their own realities too. And they're bigger to deal with than just words. Sticks and stones shall break my bones, but words they'll never hurt me. The words may not hurt, but the actual reality that the words create become the truth in which we often live into. So it's for us to hold our words in check. But what he reminds us of in this ministry of holding our tongue is that we can learn to be love freely and be face-to-face -face the way we are in prayer. And in that way, we, we become gifts to one another. So much language in our world, um, uh, and, and in romance, this, this heightens up to another degree, um, is, uh, is about possession, about being over someone, about changing someone. But what does it mean to allow for people to become gifts to us again? in their eccentricities, in their weakness, in their trials and struggle, but to allow them to be gifts to us. The second ministry he holds out for us is the ministry of meekness, of thinking less of self and higher of others. C, C plus, C. I think I do better on this one. Um, thus failing at it, thinking less of self and higher of others. Here, he offers that we should think of ourselves and associate with the lowly even if we're not. That we should come to know ourselves, as the Apostle Paul does, the worst or the chief of all sinners. Now, there's a psychologist David and I like to listen to, and he talks about how you love somebody else. Um, you love your partner, you love um, a friend, you love, and you're only slightly aware of all the ways that they're a giant mess up. And yet, we're completely aware of all the ways that we fail. I know more about my own failings than I'll ever know about somebody else's. And yet, in this way, in seeing my own self, and being able to still love and look forward to, to my own life, how much more should we be able to love other people? We're not aware of all the ways in which they're bad, it's even if we annoy acutely the way that we are bad and dysfunctional. And in knowing that, it should drive us into knowing that we are not as high as we think we are that we should be able to take a position lower than others because in ourselves we're often aware of that. Here in the ministry of meekness, he says forgiveness helps. Being able to forgive one another and to receive forgiveness. And it's often times in the church, unfortunately, we mess up the ministry of meekness. We, we think that somehow it's lying, um, 
So uh, I had a friend who was an amazing guitar player, and when you would point out to him that he was an amazing guitar player, he would s try to s somewhat own that and not be uh, self self um, detrimental or put himself down, oh, I'm not that great, oh, I'm not that good. Because to do that, you actually lie and you don't celebrate your gifts. Somebody praises you in the church and then your first response is to be like, no, I'm not that great, I'm a little bit lower than that. You don't actually get a sense of where and who you are with God. We think somehow driving ourselves deeper and deeper is the only point. But the ministry of meekness might have something to do with also being able to properly appraise where you are in the world. The Apostle Paul has this language of strong and weak, and he doesn't use it as good as bad. As, as much as we, when we read the passages where Paul talks about the strong and the weak, strong, obviously good, weak, obviously bad, moving forward, is that he actually doesn't lay over the qualities of goodness and badness, but this difference of strong and weak. And if you can never accept that you might be the strong in the community, how will you ever learn to bear with the weak? No, I'm just weaker than them. Um, no, it's for the strong to learn to bear with the weak. And it's for the weak not to use their weakness, and Bonhoeffer points this out, which I think is wise, is not to take on their weakness as a power play, but to learn to meet the strong in the place of caring for one another. And this is the challenge of meekness for us today. But for as Jesus tells us, the meek shall inherit the earth. The next one is the ministry of listening. He says, this is the first so service we are the servant of God. And he says this one, and Bonhoeffer and these German um, theologians have this way of grounding these things first in our relationship to God. We learn to listen to others because we first listen to God before we speak to God, which is totally the opposite of the way I was. Don't I speak to God first? Well, Bonhoeffer already tried to direct that we are to hear from God before we try to speak to God all the time. And here we start to love God by listening, and so it is with others that we learn to love by listening. It's not hard to say in our world we struggle to listen. I mean, one of the, if there was like an, uh, if this was a melodrama and there was somebody we'd boo and hiss for in the sermon, it would probably be the cell phone. Um, you know, there it makes it hard to listen to one another. It used to be we'd be able to talk about listening to one another and we'd talk about the ways in which I formulate my response to what the person is saying before they even finish talking. I'm too busy thinking about the ways in which I can correct him. And I think that that's still a true and, and honest struggle for us today. But so often the time, we're not even listening. Our minds are in 10 different spots. We don't allow ourselves to just sit and turn and look face to face and listen to someone together. It's during this time... Um, uh, that we are together all the time, and I notice this in my own life, but I've heard it from others too, is that we have so much time together that we find this way to feel like we're not together. It doesn't feel the same for some reason. It reminds me of this great line from G.K. Chesterton that said, we only have one life because if we'd had two, we'd find a way to waste both. Um, uh, and I think that's our relationship to time and listening and relationship. It's so easy to say, well, I'll have more time with this person, or this will be in another spot, or even now, how do we separate the times? If I'm home at work all the time, how do we separate the time to listen and to care for one another? Bonhoeffer here wants to differentiate this from modern therapy because the goal of this listening is so that we can more clearly speak God's word to one another. Bonhoeffer doesn't think we are to just neuter ourselves into listening and self-reflecting and reflecting back the other person's concern, but also to be filled by the Spirit to speak again, which is the last ministry. This brings us to the ministry of helpfulness of being able to be used and help for each other. Here, he says, we must allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. When I was uh, 
after I had finished college, I read this book called A New Way to Be Human. But the two things that, that struck out to me the most from it was that uh, Charlie Peacock, the author, argued that the best thing young people can do for their lives is learn to have unstructured time and unstructured money. That if all your time is full, you never have that to be able to be a gift to someone, to be interrupted, to meet somebody in the course of life and offer something to them. He says, as you're putting your life together as a young person or, or wherever you are, you often think, oh, here's all the things I want to do in a day. And first off, never happens. And second off, um, you begin to structure yourself in a way in which you can't be with other people. Allow yourselves to be interrupted by God. He holds out that same point for unstructured money. There will become people who come to you with needs, and you who have budgeted every dollar to every line can't be able to provide them the help that they need to be able to have that unstructuredness in their lives. Which brings us to what I think is perhaps one of the stronger ministries he talks about in this chapter is the ministry of bearing one another. The book of Galatians says that in bearing one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. Bonhoeffer wants to point out for the Christian to the other Christian is that we are a burden to one another, and that is perhaps one of the roles we have to play. The other person never becomes a burden at all for the pagans. They simply stay clear of every burden the other person may create for them, he writes. But however, Christians must bear the burden of one another. They must suffer and endure one another. Only as a burden is the other really a brother or sister and not just an object to be controlled. Only in the ways in which we carry one another do we free ourselves from seeing each other as objects, but as people given by God. But he finishes this, this, this paragraph with this beautiful summation of the gospel. The, human of, the burden of human beings was even for God so heavy that God had to go to the cross suffering under it. God truly suffered and endured human beings in the body of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, God bore them as a mother carries her child, as a shepherd the lost lamb. God took on human nature. Then human beings crushed God to the ground. But God stayed with them and they with God. In suffering and enduring human beings, God maintained community with them. It is the law of Christ that was fulfilled in the cross. Christians share in this law. They are obliged to bear with and suffer one another. But what is more important now by virtue of the law of Christ having been fulfilled, they are also able to bear one another. The ministry of bearing one another. This one poses a particular challenge in the modern world because one of the things that we least want to be to anybody is a burden for them. So much so that we have a phrase, I don't want to be a burden for you. And yet in this way, we take ourselves away from being able to fulfill the law of Christ, to being able to name and to say the ways in which we can need each other and the other can fulfill that and to mutually receive that is part of the Christian life. Here too, the strong and the weak plays a role. The strong to be able to bear the weak and the weak to be able to be with the strong and receive that help. The strong contend with their indifference here and the weak contend with their lack of their perceived lack of power and direction. So it is for Christians because Christ bore us, we are to bear one another and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. This brings us to the last practice, which perhaps is the first practice, but we have to clear some, some way before we get to that, which is the ministry of proclaiming God's word. Now, many of us think the ministry of proclaiming God's word is the preacher's job, or the ministry of proclaiming God's word is something I do when I evangelism, evangelize. But what Bonhoeffer holds out for the community is that the ministry of proclaiming God's word is what we can do for each other in our daily acts and lives. 
I was thinking about this today as, as people come and leave churches today, but it would be a, an amazing thing to hear from somebody is, well, why'd you leave that church? Well, they didn't proclaim God's word very well. And, and for somebody to say, oh, the preacher, and for the person to say, no, um, I was left alone in my sin. I was left alone in my challenges and darkness. And so they didn't proclaim God's word to me in that. We talked about this in the, when we went through the book of Ephesians, but it says that Christians are to speak the truth to one another in love. But because Paul added in love, we take that to mean we shouldn't speak at all. That we are to speak and proclaim God's word to one another in love. And he says the leniency that abandons to someone to sin is perhaps one of the darkest parts of this. The Christian community today and and in its challenges is we have this leniency that we call grace, but it's really a false grace that abandons people to their sin. And in that way, we allow them to be consumed and to become broken. And we think that we're being kind and compassionate in it. And yet, in fact, we're being neglectful. Neglectful. And we'll close with what he says is that gentle and firm are what we become because we know God's kindness and firmness ourselves. It is for us to speak to one another as we know a God who is kind to us in kindness. And it is for us to speak God's word to each other in firmness. Because in our prayers, in our lives, we know God has dealt firmly with us. And through the gift of his son has provided life and forgiveness and love so that we may be upbuilt into the character of the one. Let us pray. God, we come before you as those who are apart. And yet the challenge we hear in your scriptures in the New Testament is how are we bound together? How are we to be a service to one another? Whether it be through the holding of our tongues or of meekness or of listening to one another, providing helpfulness in this time, the ministry of bearing each other and proclaiming. God, be near to us now as we sing and as we confess so that we may know your gentleness and firmness and be brought to the newness of light and life. Amen. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant too. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are travelers on the
time of confession. Here we can learn many of the ministries in which we're proclaimed to us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that that we may may delight in your your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Let us hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone. A new life has begun. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen. And together, as we have confessed our sin, let us also confess the faith. I believe in God, the Father Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In Christ we offer all that he has offered, the perfect offering. Christ is the
Now would be our time of offering, um, but uh, we thank you who have given online and sent checks in. Um, that enables us to continue the ministry and to bring us back together again soon, prayerfully. So is our time of responding and of thanksgiving and of sharing and of prayers together. Together let us pray. Holy God, you have called us to follow in the way of your risen Son and to care for those who are companions, not only with words of comfort, but with acts of love, seeking to be friends of all. We offer our prayers and thanks on behalf of the church and world. God, we pray this morning for those of us near and far that you may bind us together in your love and that in the absence you will fulfill in our desire to be together. God, we pray for those whom are suffering during this time. We pray for those whom are overworked in medical systems. We pray for the vulnerable as they shelter in place. We pray for teachers who are teaching digitally and learning new skills, and we pray for the children who are learning at distance. We pray for the parents that they may have patience and time. And God, we pray for those losing employment, losing their businesses and livelihoods. Mm -hmm. We pray for all those who have lost during this time, lost weddings and graduations, but also those who have lost funerals that time of collective mourning together. God, we also give thanks. Thanks for the gift of a new day. Thanks that your mercies are new every morning. Yes. Thanks for the beauty of the weather we've been having and the gifts that we can be and are for one another. God, draw us into the deepness of rest, for it is you who rested before us on the seventh day. May we learn to rest well together, to hear your voice say, it is very good. And so we pray together the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our, Our Father, Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. 